Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Metadata. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 262 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in Ann Arbor. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. Before we get started, we'd like to thank our sponsors. First of all, we'd like to thank Colonial Surety Company Bonds and Insurance for bringing you this podcast. Whatever court bond you need, get a quote and purchase online at colonialsurety.com forward slash podcast. And we'd also like to thank ServeNow, a nationwide network of trusted pre-screened process servers. Work with the most professional process servers who have experience with high-volume serves, embrace technology, and understand the litigation process. Visit ServeNow.com to learn more. And we want to remind you that the second edition of our book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, is available on Amazon. Everyone agrees that collaboration is essential in today's world, but now more than ever, knowing the right tools will make all the difference. As I like to say at the start of our recent episodes, what a difference another week or two of pandemic and everything else makes these days. In our last episode, we shared some of our best tips on presenting online. In this episode, we want to talk about new ideas and ways to capture, share, and develop them to enhance your chances that they will actually turn into actions. Tom, what's all on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, we will indeed be discussing ways to move from idea to action. Uh, in our second segment, I plan on schooling Dennis on why he needs a large monitor. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. But first up, how to move your ideas to action. There's an idea that's been bouncing around in my head the past couple of weeks. I reached out to Dennis about it, and I was asking for his advice on the best ways to capture and share that idea initially with him. His initial response left me totally confused, somewhat frustrated, um, but it got me thinking that this might be a good topic for the podcast. So here we are. Dennis, we aren't going to revisit the entire conversation, but I thought my initial question was pretty straightforward. I had an idea. I wanted to tell you about it. I wanted to ask some questions about it. I looked back on our conversation, and I counted 30 different back-and-forth responses in our online chat before I was satisfied with an answer. And to me, it seems like it should have been easier. Should it have been easier than I found it? Well, I think so. But I, I think when we go to the B segment, if we go back and count all the exchanges we've had about large monitors uh, on Microsoft Teams back and forth, there's probably like 300 of, of those. So sometimes it just takes a little bit of time. But I think in so I would say, yes, it definitely should be easier. But I also think it's very personal. And so part of it was just trying to figure out what it was that you wanted to do and what you were most comfortable working with. And also, I think 
when when you come up with new ideas and kind of want to develop them, you really need to kind of think about the frameworks that are out there. And for me, I think the big thing is reducing friction in getting the idea out of your head and making it easier to work with people. And that's a lot more important than specific tools because uh, the tools, I can work with a lot of different tools. I work with different you know, software tools and cloud services with a lot of people. Um, and sometimes you, uh, the quest to find the right tool is actually a way of procrastinating on, on getting to the idea. So that's sort of one of my learnings uh, from that conversation. And it's something that's been really, really crystallizing for me lately is that it, I think it's best not to start with the tool. And it's kind of that trap we often talk about in technology when somebody says to you, what's the best tool for X? You're actually kind of um, in a, a, a losing kind of game because I think you need to step back and say, okay, what is it that I want to accomplish here? And what approach actually makes sense? So my pushback on this is going to be and, and we're going to get into this a little bit more as you outline kind of the process. But my pushback is going to be that, and I, I totally get why you shouldn't make the tool the focus. But I also would say that if you're not considering the tool, one of the risks that I see, and you've kind of laid it out here in the outline that we're talking about today, one of the risks that I see is that you could wind up using three or four tools throughout the whole course of it if you don't think about things ahead of time because you haven't really clearly thought out how do we want to accomplish this and it could wind up in my mind and, and what I want to talk about is doesn't more tools equal more friction um, because I feel like the, the, the more ways that we have to deal with things the harder and more complicated it becomes so I think that that to me anyway, you've got to at least think about a tool. You can't, you can't premise the whole process on finding the perfect tool for it. But my question really was, Dennis, I have an idea. What's my best way of getting that idea down to you? But And, and here's, here's where my problem is going to be is, to me, it doesn't seem like it's as simple as just getting that question down. It's about what do we do after that? And I don't want to hop to another tool to do that. I want to find a tool that does all of it. And if I'm wrong about that, then I want to hear about it. But that's that's kind of where I'm rubbing up against the idea. I get the idea of not starting with a tool first, but it also feels like we're in for a whole lot of work down the road if we don't at least consider it initially. Yeah, I mean, this is the point where if I if I weren't talking to you, I would say, oh, you should check out our collaboration tools book. And we have this notion of co-collaboration where really there's going to be uh, tools that work really well for you. But when you start to interact with people, those will change. And so part of when you ask me the question, I, I, I think, okay, here's what I would do. Tom doesn't have the same approach. So we kind of need to, and I need to figure out what, stage of the process he's at and what makes sense. And and I think in a lot of cases, I am working in ideas, especially where there's a number of people involved with maybe like three, three tools easily. It's not ideal, but you kind of have to go with what people have and what's available and what their comfort is. So I'm, you know, for me, We'll come back to that in a minute, but you just said it's not ideal, and I will say that to me sounds like friction. 
And so we'll come back to that in a minute. But maybe the best place to start really is to kind of outline the process, because I think you've got a, a specific set of steps that we need to follow to accomplish this process. Do you want to kind of describe it and then maybe we can break it down? Yeah, so I, I think there's four sort of key steps. So when you when you brought the question to me, I said, and when I'm talking to people about innovation ideas, there's sort of four key steps. So, you know, this is not rocket science. So you need to capture the idea, you need to shape the idea, you need to share the idea, and you need to validate it. And there's probably some degree of iteration that's involved there. And in a lot of cases, it's not necessarily sequential. So it's not like, oh, boom, one, two, three, four, depending on who the people you work with. So if I were working with you, I would say it's totally going to be sequential because that's the way you operate. Uh, for some people I work with, it's going to be a little bit all over the place. And as you know, working with me on the scripts and the podcast and the stuff, that sequential is probably not the thing I'm best known for in the creative process. And this framework kind of touches on some of the things I've, uh, I'm involved with the, my friends at Foundation Lab and our friend uh, Gwen Monahan about on uh, creating something we call the Exponential Law Community. And we did a, a webcast recently where we kind of walked through the idea of validation process. So, well, there are some different things. And so I have, you know, in innovation ideas, there is sort of a process that you follow and the, the tools uh, will make sense. But those steps, time, capture, sh shape, share, validate. So I suppose, uh, I'm guessing you're going to have questions about each of these and, and we'll break it down. That would that would be logical to assume. So let's break it down. Um, capture, I mean, I assume that means capturing the idea or does it mean capturing more than the idea? I think it means, uh, for me, it just means capturing the idea to say, okay, so what is what is this idea that's rattling around in my head? What do I remember of it? How do I actually, you know, put it into a form where I can find it again so I don't forget it? So I say, oh, this actually makes the list of ideas. So some people have like a journal, an idea notebook. Uh, I typically put things down in into mind maps, but there's a number of tools. Some people, you know, might do an audio recording, but I just like a really simple approach. And I think this is the one that you can really overthink. So for me, that's like pencil and paper, mind map, get it down, minimize the friction, maximize my creativity. So when you said, hey, I have this idea, what tools should I use? I'm kind of like, well, if you're capturing it, the main thing is not to forget it. I mean, I used to do this thing when I was younger, especially to say, hey, if I have this idea, I don't necessarily need to write it down because if it's a great idea, I'll remember it because we'll I'll kind of keep thinking about it. Now, as I get older, it's kind of better to write it down. So I wasn't sure where you were at this stage where you were just saying, hey, I just, what's the best place to capture this to start? I, I don't worry so much about that. It's sort of like in the next step shape where I focus more on the actual tool that you might use. Well, and, and I think this is where part of my hesitation comes because to me, it seems inefficient not to capture it in the same place where you want to shape it. I want to do it all at the same place because otherwise, if I'm moving it to where I captured it into where I'm going to shape it, 
there's, to me, that's the definition of friction. So let's get there. We've captured it. To me, shaping it is part two of capturing it, right? I mean, is that's it's taking what you've got in its raw form and enhancing it or bringing it into more of its fullness of realization. I'm not sure if those are the right words to use, or right. not, but that's so kind of how so, I view it. Yeah, so you could do a couple of different things there. So you'd say, I might have written it down on pencil and paper. So I might, you know, depending on what my preference is, I might put it into a Word document. I might put it into Google Docs if I knew that the person I was working with preferred to work in, in Google Docs. Uh, you know, because that would that would help with the sharing right away. For me, it's uh, you know, since I'm going to do mind mapping, you know, I can just uh, start my mind map uh, with that idea. So I'm just moving that idea from wherever I jotted it down into a mind map, or I might just start with the idea in a mind map. Um, that's typically going to be pencil and paper for me. So that's. That's just the way I work. Somebody else might put it into a mind mapping program. They might put it into a post-it note program. There's a bunch of you know, there's a bunch of tools out there. Um, and here's where you start to think because you say basically an idea is something I could. It's not a big deal to retype or to copy and paste or you know do something like that to get it into the into the next stage and start to work with it. And there, it's just again. I'm just saying, like, well, how how do I build things out? Is it going to be an outline? What's my typical way of working? And I need to just get it to the point, probably where somebody else can look at it. Um, and that's what I, I would think about. One of the things I really like these days is the value proposition canvas, and almost every idea I'm putting it into that. And I think that's a great format for me but when i told you about that you were like oh my god this is the most confusing thing ever it's, it's like incredibly confusing <laughs> you know more work than ever and but this is something i work with and, and so so and that's where you sort of say well if i'm collaborating with somebody then i need to say if they if they like working with a value proposition canvas business model canvas other things you know post-it note type thing like mural uh those sorts of things then I know I can go there. Otherwise, if I don't know that, then it becomes harder uh, to do that. And so the sharing is really like, uh, out of the shaping, then I would say, okay, so what do I what do I need? Because now I know that the sharing is coming. So what, how do I move that along? And that involves the people you're working with. So do I need to, is an outline the way to go? is some kind of narrative, some sort of one page with bullet points, uh, some sort of drawing, that sort of thing. And that's where I, you start to think of who is it that I'm, I'm working with. So I don't, I don't know whether that totally helps, but that's how I, that's how I think about it. Well, so, but we're, we're now going, we're now getting closer into the next phase, which is sharing. And this is where, you know, you claim to know that I would prefer the sequential model. But for me, anyway, when it came to this specific instance, I wanted to share before shaping. I mean, I wanted to say, here's my idea. I've captured it. I'm sharing it with you because I want to go further with it. And frankly, to me, that's going to be what people will do more often than than capture, then shape, then share, at least my inclination, my instinct would be to share before shaping and shaping in a collaborative way rather than doing something like that on my own. And yeah, I would say I would think about it that way. 
I would say capture, light shaping, share, back to shape, more sophisticated shaping, maybe a couple rounds of that is how I, I would think of it. So you would say, I have this idea um, and it's, uh, you know, whatever the idea is, then you would say, well, before I actually want to show that to Dennis, I kind of need to, you know, at least make it grammatical and, you know, make it less confusing as to what I have in mind. So that- And true, I that, did that. I did so that. that, yep. So that first thing is, and so uh, then you put it into into mural, which surprised me, but it, it worked pretty well. And then at that point, I'm able to share, but I could have shared that, if you would have shared that as a an outline in Google Docs, any, any number of ways, but it's, it's just kind of like, how could I work with you on that? Then I can start to say things like, oh, I see this, what are the, the missing steps? And so, and for me, typically what I, what I find is uh, these days is somebody gives me an idea, kind of shape it a little bit, I start to understand it, and I'm starting to say, okay, so who is the customer? You know, uh, what are the assumptions you're making about this that we need to surface? And then, I just need a way to react to you and you need a way to do that or we can we can respond. So using mural with these post-it notes, we could have done that. We could have done it as an outline. It's just sort of, you know, how, that's why I say with friction, for me, the easiest thing is that you stay in the tool that you like using because I can adjust to that. But and that's, so, that's so before, let's, before we go any further, for the people who are listening who may not be familiar with it, can you just give a quick description of Mural? Because I, I would say I didn't use it because it was the best tool for the process. I used it because I was interested in learning about using it and um, seeing how it worked for this particular activity. I don't know that I'd recommend doing it, going straight to that for what I was doing in this case. But can you kind of give a kind of a high level overview of what Mural is and what it does, what purpose it is? Because I think that calling it a sticky note app is not probably doing it justice. Right. I, I would call it a collaborative whiteboard tool that makes it really easy for you to do post-it notes. Um, super easy for that. I think you can do some drawings and things like that. So I, but I, we're in the world of the legal world, so you sort of see less draw, much less drawing in the post-it note. Things I, I think work well, so it's a it's a standard tool out there. You know, like I said, you could go any number of approaches. I think people are comfortable in Google Docs, you know, OneNote, Murals. Kind of interesting these days, especially in the the design world. There's a program called Notion, which is another easy way. And to me, it's similar to OneNote, very collaborative way of kind of free-forming some things. I think you could actually do something where your sharing gets done in Zoom, and then you might do you know, like a, a shared document or a mural or something like that. So it's just sort of the way you, you work. Because otherwise, there's there comes a point, I think, where probably you're going to be talking to the other person. So something that will work um, in that environment. Okay. All right. So this is still my biggest issue, and I'm not sure that I'm, I've been satisfied on it, and I may not be at the end of this, but because 
technically, it's possible that we could have used three potential tools to do all of this. There could have been a tool that I used to capture it. I could have written it down with a pen and paper. There could have been another tool that I used to shape it, and then a third tool to share it with you. And it feels to me like it feels to me like that's the opposite of frictionless. It feels like it's mostly friction. And so I would say probably go to where you said before, which is don't feel like you have to use a separate tool for each process. Use what is comfortable for you in the context of whatever it is you're trying to do. Right, because I would say in most of the things that I would do where I'm no, and then we can do what we did, you know, when we wrote the book is that we plan in advance what the sharing tool is going to be, you know, and that that drives a lot of what we're doing. So I would say my typical process would be it's pencil and paper, it's mind map. And if I had an idea and I said, Tom, I have this idea, say for, a, you know, an online course or, you know, a new edition of our book or whatever, I would say, Tom, I mind map this. I have this outline. Uh, do you want it in Google? Do you want it as a Google Doc? Do you want it in some other form? And then I would turn it into an outline because I think that is kind of an easier way for people to do do markup and add things and to comment and, and that sort of thing. So for me, I'm not looking at a, a specific software tool because at that, the first couple of steps for me, the software tools would, I feel, get in my way still. So I don't mind taking the extra work to pull it you know, into, into something more formal to share with someone. But I, I think it is a little bit hard. Because you don't know that, uh, you know, inside an organization, you might say everybody's using the same tool, and that makes it a little bit easier. But, you know, most of the time I'm working with people and I go like, oh, I'm working with this person. That means it's going to be mural with this. These people, they're, you know, they really like Notion. How, uh, you know, this person is a Google Doc, you know, that sort of thing. You have to make adjustments to people, which is why the best tool, you know, the best tool for collaboration um, that we often get asked is kind of like, well, you got to figure out who you're working with, right? Yep, yep. Okay, let's get to the last step. That last step seems obvious to me, validate, which means get feedback that your idea is worthwhile, test it out. Is that right? Is there more to it than that? Yeah, there actually is some more, I, I think, conceptually there, but um, this to me is uh, is a lot more structured and almost scientific in, in the approach. And so working with with Mike Capucci and, and Dean Chiellani uh, at Foundation Lab and uh, looking at David Bland's new book called Testing Business Ideas, there's really a scientific process to that. And so the validation to me says, okay, so once I figured out what this idea actually is, who the customer is, what the uh, you know what it's like, what I want to do. Then uh, we're looking for evidence. So you're going to say, what are my most, what are the assumptions that I'm making here about whether this will work or not, and do I have evidence for these? And it's almost there's a, a sort of quadrant approach that you take where you say, how important is this, and then how much evidence I have. And you're trying to figure out, um, in a lot of ways, what is the most important assumption you're making for which you have the least evidence, okay? So, and it could be, you know, that 
the customer you're thinking of has any interest in this all at all. And then, but you're going to kind of refine that and you're going to then say, can I, knowing that I need to know that to go forward, how can I test out that hypothesis to see whether it's sound or not, or that I need to make changes to it? So in the video, the live stream we just did, we were looking at something that we thought would help recent law school graduates. And our first assumption, when because we had somebody who was a student of mine, actually kind of shot our main assumption right out of the water, uh, right off the bat. Um, and so we had to make some some changes to that. But But the good thing is in the validation process, you're figuring that out ahead of time and you've not created this whole product um, and then find out there's that your customers don't want it at all, that they want something else or that you're making a, a big mistake. So that's innovation. And, and so with Tom, with, with your idea, that's going to be one of, one of the things where you say, if I do this, who is going to be the buyer and do they have the ability to buy it, I think is one thing. And are they willing to replace what they're currently using, whether it works or not at all? So there's going to be a, a number of things around there. And then uh, to simplify this, because I know we're going to wrap up here, but there's this notion of desirability. Does somebody want it? Feasibility. Can you actually do it? And viability. I sometimes think of, can you do it profitably? You know, does it make sense economically to do your idea? So you can have this great idea, right? I have this idea to do this and completely change the world. And you go, well, I need to kind of shape that. I need to get some reaction to that. But I can actually validate that, test it. And in a word I like to use these days, I can de-risk what I'm doing, the action that I'm, that I'm doing by identifying the most important hypothesis that I actually don't have any evidence for, and then getting the evidence for that. Because otherwise, you know, I'm, I'm taking a, a big risk because I'm just assuming, most of the time, I'm assuming that there's a buyer for this. So I I think conceptually you're there. I just think it's, it's I love this because it's so much more scientific, you know, um, Okay, to once me. you validated... I, I know this is not within the bounds of this, of this, but what's the next step? What happens after validation? Where do we go then? And that's not the topic of this podcast, but how do we tie that all off? And typically, it's going to be something like a prototyping. You're going, okay, so now we think we have an audience. We've tested it in some way. So if you're in the lean startup world, sort of what's the minimum uh, viable product? Like, what's, what can I put out there? Uh, what can I prototype? Can I actually see whether it will work uh, and and get that out there? Then it becomes sort of uh, then how once you have that, how do you launch it? And then uh, then how do you actually kind of support and you know build it out over time? So kind of those steps. I think the big thing for me as I look at innovation is that there's so much focus on the brainstorming and ideation and you go, okay, so I have the ideas, but where in the heck does that go? And if you say, if I go past ideas, there's this next thing that's called validation. Then I'm to a prototyping sort of thing or, you know, minimum viable product range. Then I know that there's, there's a structure 
to what it is I'm doing, and you're more likely to uh, to have an idea. You have stronger ideas go forward in more, you know, in ways that are more likely to be successful. I don't, you know, so your chances might improve. You know, so maybe you have less than ten percent of your ideas or the products that you would launch are going to be successful, and and you're learning from failures, and that's the nature of the scientific method, but. If you do this de-risking and you do, you know, the testing and validation, then maybe you en enhance your chances that, uh, you know, not to 100%, but you're, you're going to be more likely than to say, you know, some of the things I've seen that law firms have done recently where I go like, oh, my God, they spent all this time and they've uh, recreated like a version of Doodle, you know, like the, uh, the online appointments scheduler. And you go like, I wonder why they... <laughs> Why they decided that was a good use of everybody's time internally. All right, we've got to get out of this segment. What's your best tips and your best way to close this out, Dennis? How do we? Uh, how do lawyers move forward with thinking about this? Well, I think you know you look at each part of it, and this is what I do in my law school classes. And what I've learned from the students is they've kind of really come up with some great ideas and figured out how to put them through this process to turn them into you know, really uh, potentially great business ideas or, or service offerings. So you want to get this stuff out of your head. You want to get somebody else looking at it, and then you you want to test it. And and there actually is a methodology that, that works pretty well. And I still think if you kind of over-focus on tools, you go on like tools, 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 that's probably a form of uh, procrastination. All right, there it is. So before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsors. Wish you could get a quote and purchase an appeal, trustee, estate, or any other court or fiduciary bond quickly online? Colonial Surety Company has every bond you need and is a direct insurer that's U.S. Treasury listed, licensed in all 50 states and territories, and rated A excellent by AM Best. So you can be confident it's a trusted resource. Get started at colonialsurety.com forward slash podcast. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry, connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. So we love to get questions from you, our listeners, at our voicemail line at 720-441-6820. And in this episode, we have a question. It's from me for Tom. And Tom has almost convinced me that I need a very large monitor. I mean, very large. I'm not quite there. So we thought we'd let Tom talk me through the benefits, the costs, curved versus non-curved monitors, and try to convince me. So, Tom, I'm ready. Well, first, let's define what we're talking about. So for years, I, I can't count how many times um, our law practice management friends would just – 
praise the, the, the virtues of having dual monitors, about how we needed to have two monitors. You can keep two programs open at once. You can work on a Word document while you keep your research open on another screen. You can keep your email open on one screen while you work on another. It's amazing. Two monitors. Well, now over the past four to five years, we've started to see the size of the monitors really increase in a, in a width fashion. They've kept this kind of 21 by 9 in, uh, inch ratio and right uh, you know right now I have a 27 inch surface studio 28 inch which is pretty darn big um, but I've started to notice that it's hard to keep multiple things open the way that I really want to and there are some ultra wide monitors that are out there that are now between 29 inches all the way up to 49 inches which is <laughs> Four, a monitor that it's four feet wide is pretty darn big. The general arguments for ultra-wide versus dual monitors are, one, ultra-wide gives you better use of real estate. You don't have two separate devices, the space in between, lots of bezels. It's just one unbroken field of vision. Two, you only have to set one resolution. The colors are always going to be consistent. You only have one set of settings. You're not having to set two different monitors for the settings. Um, three, this is less important for working, but if you like to watch movies, you get more of a cinematic experience, obviously, with the ultra-wide monitor. So those are the kinds of things that have generally persuaded me that I would prefer to have an ultra-wide monitor. Now, the next question becomes curved versus plain ultra-wide. I have decided, and I've actually already purchased, a curved monitor. I think it gives a more immersive experience than a flat monitor. I think also, and I, I don't have scientific proof of this yet, but I believe that it takes up slightly less space than a flat monitor of the same size. It just makes sense. It's going to not quite take up the same room. I purchased for myself a Dell UltraSharp 38-inch screen, although frankly, if my desk were big enough, I might have been tempted to go for the 49-inch version. I'm waiting for a new computer to arrive, so I will let you know in a future episode and maybe a blog post how it all works out. In terms of cost, you can find an ultra-wide monitor for as cheap as, I think, maybe three dollars or $400, and you can go all the way up to $1,500, $2,000 for a monitor. So it depends on the monitor that you want to get and how much but you've got a bunch of different options there. And I pretty much am sold that I think ultra-wide is, is the way to go versus dual monitors. That just seems so, you know, 2015. So we've talked about, like, the how large is large. So we know that there's 49, uh, which is extreme, like almost breathtaking when you see that uh, a setup like that. Because I, I saw somebody tweeted a picture of their setup with the 49 inch thing and i i reached out to you right away and said oh my god i think i need this um but uh, which is kind of funny because i've you know i mainly work off a, a 12 inch macbook so this is a big step for me so there's this this sort of large 27 inch there's sort of the large maybe like 30 would be like the next 31 and then there's 34 and then you go to 38. So what's your, you went, you ended up with the 38, but can, can people get away with less? Well, so I think that you shouldn't get away. You shouldn't go with just 29 or 31 inches because the difference between that and getting an iMac or a surface studio, which are 27 inches or 28 inches 
I think that's just just a marginal difference. So I wouldn't go if if you're going to to really go in for ultra wide. I would start at 34 and up. Um, I think that's the only way to make it worth your while. Otherwise, I would just stick with an all in one. So for me, the big thing. So I'm mainly going to be doing riding, and where I notice a big problem, you know, where the screen size is starting to matter to me is actually on Zoom. So I'm on a Zoom call. Somebody shares the screen. I may. You know, if we're using something like mural at the same time, there's a kind of a lot going on in a small amount of space and you're switching between windows. So your feeling is that uh, that that ultra wide will be the answer to my my issue there? I think it will be. And the other thing that you'll want to explore is there are a couple of different tools. I mean, Windows has something built into it, but there are other tools out there that will allow you to snap Windows together to, you know, to divide up your screen. You can actually customize your screen and say, I want to have this part of my screen be for this real estate and this part be for this. And it will snap those windows to that particular area. So you might want to take a look at some of those different uh, options that are out there. But there's a couple of different ways to configure that. And then I, a friend of mine has was showing me his setup where he has, I think, a thirty either a thirty one or thirty four, and he has a docking station and his laptop set up basically in front of it, and he says it's amazing. But he's like a multiple monitor. But actually, the thing you were saying about eliminating the gap between the monitors and kind of focusing, refocusing from monitor to monitor is, is kind of compelling to me. Is that your your feeling, or do you are you? Oh no, that's that's totally it for me. It's I like it being one continuous monitor. In fact, I'm I'm trying to decide whether I want to hook it up to my laptop and use that monitor. I I probably will. I probably will put it to a dock, but I won't use the monitor on my laptop. I'll probably just use the widescreen monitor to do my to do work on. Um, in addition to you know my any personal stuff I'm going to do on the computer. And then my last question for you is the curved versus non-curved. So I understand that the curved is immersive and uh, gives you this great peripheral view. But I don't really have, you know, with my glasses, I don't have much of a peripheral vision anyway. So is is that curved screen wasted on me? Um save a little money by just going to a flat screen or ultimately it doesn't matter these days because it's newer technology or you know just better quality monitor in the curve ones these days wow, that's a good that's a that's a really good question I'm not sure I mean I I don't think you can go wrong with either one of those I mean the the, the reviews that I see generally tend to prefer curved but and and it's mostly because of the immersive experience I personally think that the curve is not uh, significant enough to affect your peripheral vision. I think that um, it's not quite that big to be a, 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 to have that big of an effect on it. But uh, you know, I, I I think frankly you can't go wrong with either one of them. Um, you, I think you'll do well with with either one. And uh, I kind of am embracing the cool factor of the curved. It just looks cool. I I like it. Uh, I will let you know how it works out. And so I guess the, the last thing we have is uh, just a request for our listeners to donate to the Tom and Dennis uh, <laughs> Large Monitor Fund, and that will kind of help us with our decisions. Uh, so now it's time, Tom, for our parting shots. That one tip, website, or observation you can use the second this podcast ends. So, Tom, take it away. 
So my parting shot this week is a site or a tool actually called Readwise. And what Readwise does is it connects to the services that you may use to save notes. Um, you can connect it to your Kindle. You can connect it to services like Instapaper or Pocket. If you've got iBooks, you can do that. Um, you can actually save your favorite tweets and threads from Twitter as well. And what it does is it works on the premise of basically creating a reading workflow um, where you're capturing information, you're going back and reviewing it later, and you're integrating it. So you're actually learning from the stuff that you're reading. I mean, it's, it's, you're taking it and it's not just going away. It's, it's to a certain extent going back to school again, but it's a different way of learning. And so what happens is once you've once you've highlighted stuff in your Kindle book, for example, you can click in the Readwise app and it will do what they call your daily Readwise. And it will show you kind of essentially little flashcards of the highlights from different books that you've taken. And you can further add notes to those. You can highlight them more to say, you know what, I highlighted this paragraph, but I really think that this part of it is more important and I want to pay attention to this. Like I said, you can annotate it, you can do other things about it, but it's designed to re surface information to you um, that you might have learned in the past when you read the book, but you may have forgotten. I mean, those are things that, you know, how, how long after we read a book do we really remember everything that we read? And I like the idea that this is part of what I'm starting to look at is keeping a second brain. And, and this is one way of doing it with the information that you have, uh, that you that you read and that you collect. And the fact that it automatically syncs from these services is great. Um, there is a free trial it's a subscription to use. There's a $4.49 a month or a $7.99 a month, depending on what you want. But uh, I'm in the middle of my trial. I'm really enjoying it, and I'm probably going to subscribe to it when my trial ends. Readwise.io. Dennis. Yeah, Tom, we talked about that bef before recording, and, and we're so both kind of gravitating towards this notion of second brand. So I, th I think we'll probably return to that topic. So I'm doing this new thing called the exponential law community. And I just wanted to uh, direct people there. So the easiest way to find this is going to go be to go to my blog, DennisKennedy.blog. And I did a, a, a recent post, which probably will be the one of the top items, top couple of items if you if you're listening to this when it comes out on my on my blog, which is look for exponential law community. Um, the idea is that we wanted to create a community for really innovative lawyers who are probably not part of a community or they're kind of alone in what they do in their firm or organization. And the focus is actually meant to be on the individual rather than the organization, because I think a lot of the innovative lawyers are probably going to find throughout the rest of the year that uh, the loyalty that their current firm or organization has to them is uh, maybe a bit less than they they hoped. But so I think this is a group that needs a community. We're doing this challenge of a month thing, and this will also be in a blog post. But we did a, a live, unrehearsed uh, idea of validation uh, exercise uh, with something we call the challenge of the month, and that's available. Uh, but I encourage any of you who are innovators who just want to see how you can further your your own career individually, not necessarily your organizations. Um, we're trying to create a community and, and see what happens. So uh, look for that my blog and uh, uh, hope to, to see you joining that.
And so that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for this episode on the Legal Talk Network's page for our podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site, where you can also find archives of all of our previous podcasts along with transcripts. If you'd like to get in touch with us, reach out to us on LinkedIn, or as Dennis said, you can leave us a voicemail. That number is 720-441-6820. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of the Kennedy Mile Report on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network.